A listener's note, this series includes descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and grooming. It is not recommended for young audiences. The People vs. Robichaud and Riley is an ongoing case. At the time of this episode's original air date, the defendants had not been convicted of any crimes alleged against them. From Justine Harmon and Audio Chuck, this is OC Swingers, Chapter 10, Hanging Chads. She slept for years on a bench in a park. She made some passes at man in the dark. They began running alone through the night. When she began loving, they put up no fight. After Mike Fell's pronouncement that the defense has never actually claimed Grant and Sarissa's innocence. His job is to distract everybody from the facts of the case. But the reason that we've never heard is that my client didn't do it. Grant's defense attorney, Philip Cohen, bit his tongue. Just kidding. May I? Go ahead. Thank you. I, despite the court's invitation, I don't like to interrupt. I am happy to have a discussion of the facts of this case at any time the court wants, on the record, with this entire audience listening. Why would I want to do that now? Judge Bromberg is like, fellas, for the final time, this is a pre-trial hearing. We were summoned here today to discuss the Kearns memo, and that in-camera hearing I already told you was no big deal. Legit, why are you still talking about all this other nonsense? We have not started a court trial today, have we? No. All right. Everybody knows that. Yes. My job is to listen to the facts of what you folks are talking about that are being raised pre-trial, pre-preliminary hearings, make determinations on that. Um, it's, it's not for the court to pontificate. And I'm not suggesting that anybody here has pontificated because no one has. But understand that it's not for this court to listen to the facts of this case. I know what the alleged facts are. I have read the alleged facts. I read uh, Judge Jones's 25-page ruling to deny the dismissal of this case. I have read the 73-page police report. I have listened to audios. I'm getting there. I've had this case for two, two and a half weeks. I'm getting there. So let's understand, if I, if I need clarification on an issue that's raised that relates to the fact I will ask everybody for that information. But Cohen is still hung up on the Kern stuff, specifically the memo Matt Murphy had come into, portions of which ran in the Los Angeles Times. Why was it okay that members of the press published excerpts from a partially redacted performance review? Why not unseal the original version of the memo for everyone to see? What deep, dark secrets was Matt Murphy hiding beneath those opaque black lines? He wants both versions unsealed. Yesterday. Bromberg is over it. Okay, hang on, sir. We're getting into bantering again. I'm not going to do that. I, I appreciate, I respect everything you're doing. I respect everything all counts are doing. There's an issue between you and Mr. Murphy, and I'm, I'm seeing it's starting to impact this case uh, because it's impacted the case 
for the last two years. No, I, I'm sorry. I, I've been, what I've been reading, I'm saying it. Okay. Uh, no one has. You don't have to agree with that. But I'm not interested in, in in the banter. I'm not interested in taking shots. The issues that we have here are what they are. We've already discussed them. You're going to file a motion. We probably should have stopped this 45 minutes ago. Okay. Um, I don't like to cut lawyers off when they have something they want to say. But I haven't heard anything yet new that we haven't already discussed that I'm not going to read in the motions. I'm not one of those that wants to hear it twice. So is there anything new that you want to add at this point? The judge doesn't know what to do with the Kearns memo right now, he says. The defense is welcome to share Kearns' deposition testimony from the civil suit as proof of some underlying collusion between the former investigator and the victims in this case, if they want. They can also file an unredacted version of the Kearns memo. Both versions of the memo will remain under seal until further notice. If they become an evidence, remember, they're not an evidence right now. They are hearsay documents floating around. No one can use them for anything right now. I'm not even convinced they're even confidential documents. I don't know what the practice is in the district attorney's office regarding these type of memos, but I would think if something was going to be confidential from that office, it would take them. But right now, it's, it's just kind of a hanging chat. You'll remember the term hanging chad from the 2000 election, those little half-punched holes in the ballot that became a symbol for political fealty and also probably lost Al Gore the presidency. Textbook boomer reference. Well, the Kearns memo wasn't a hanging chad for long. Less than two weeks after the March 25th hearing, Jennifer Kearns filed her own lawsuit against Todd Spitzer, claiming he colluded with the defense to sabotage the criminal case from the moment he took office. The contentious Kearns memo was unsealed, too. I've read it, and I cannot imagine a world where any version of it, redacted, unredacted, or shredded, is a good document for the defense. Almost all of the allegations of misconduct by the DA's office against Kearns were either shown to be completely untrue or substantiated. Quote, by all accounts, Kearns was honest and forthright in this investigation. For some minor procedural errors, the commanders recommended additional report writing training and a letter of reprimand. So much for that compelling rogue investigator theory. But at this point in the case, we're now at April 21st, 2021. Judge Bromberg doesn't want to dig through the weeds anymore. He wants to set a preliminary hearing. Because I'm ready to set a preliminary hearing in this case. Understood, Your Honor. It's because we have conducted a very thorough review of this case. We have looked at all the evidence. We have talked to all the decisions that are willing to speak to us. Um, we've done our due diligence and then some. Um, we are very close to a decision. Our decision is imminent. However, because we do have an entirely new boss, out of fairness to him, we would like the opportunity to explain our review so that he can then sign off on our decision. In March of this year, Javier Becerra, whose name I mispronounced as Xavier with an X in an early episode, I regret the error, was confirmed to be President Joe Biden's Secretary of Health and Human Services. His replacement, Rob Bonta, wasn't formally announced as California's new attorney general until the day after this hearing. The man was so new in his gig as the top prosecutor in California that the ink hadn't even dried on his press release. Wonder how much he knows about the serpentine case against Grant Robichaux and Sarissa Riley. You're going to sit down with the new attorney general and discuss this case with him. Is that what you're telling me? We're going to brief him on our review. Who is we? 
you're, you're the attorney that's been involved in this case from the beginning. Correct. I, I mean, the, the delays in this case are insurmountable. I, 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 I've, we, we've had this case for just about five or six weeks now in this courtroom, and I, I can't believe, looking at the history, that the delays that have occurred. I'm not saying they weren't warranted. They're well warranted, I understand, uh, with the motions and the hearings and all the nastiness that went on. Um, so it, it, that, that's not the criticism. The criticism is in deference to the new attorney general. I just don't understand that. I, I, I'm, I'm not excited about that at all. And May 25th, why is it going to take over a month to brief the attorney general on this case? Is that because he's busy and has other things to do? Not at all, Your Honor. That okay. was to allow for all the attorneys that are involved in the case to be present. It's quite difficult given the amount of attorneys to find one date that works for everyone. How about we do this? Can you give the court kind of a preview of where you're going in this case? Do you believe you're going to be able to move forward with it? Do you believe you're going to be asking for something else? Do you believe you might be asking for a special prosecutor? What do you think you might be doing? How about a little assistance here? I do not believe that we're going to be requesting a special prosecutor. However, the decision of how how we go forward is not entirely mine to make. That would be the new attorney general's decision. Really? He's the elected official. He's the elected official, and the elected official determines what cases go forward? Is that how that works? I, I, I'm, I'm just speaking from ignorance. I'm sorry. Is that how that makes the determinant? The tail kind of wags the dog a little bit? Is that how that happens? I don't think it's a situation where the tail is wagging the dog. However, I do think that this is a very serious case. There's a, a lot of going on in the case, and we do need to properly brief the new AG. But he is going to make the decision whether it goes forward not trial counsel, is that correct? We will make a recommendation. You're not answering my question. Your Honor, I do not make decisions for the Attorney General, but I can make a recommendation based on my review. Okay. Um, can you give the court a heads up as to what your recommendation might be at this point in time? At this point, I cannot. Why? Because that is for the Attorney General to sign off. The Attorney General has to sign off on whether you can state a recommendation or not? To the court? Yes. At this time... I'm asking you, I'm asking you as an officer of the court to give the court, this case is so old now, I'm asking, it's not unreasonable what the court's asking, I'm asking you to give the court at least a heads up or an idea as to the direction you are going with respect to a recommendation you might give to the Attorney General who is a politician. You're not a politician. I am not a politician. Politics don't play in the third branch of government. Remember that, right? I okay, absolutely good. agree. All right. So um, um, do you think what I'm asking for is unreasonable? I think the best I can say here at this point is that we expect to move forward on some counts, but not all counts. Okay. Um, can you do any better than that? At this point, I cannot. One thing I am considering is that we need to speak to the victims before we publicly announce which counts we may or may not move forward with. How is that going as far as speaking with the victims? I know that when you were in uh, Judge Pham's court at the beginning of the year um, and subsequent to that, 
you had indicated to her that you wanted to uh, meet with the victims, because uh, apparently you, you had not done that. I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're making an effort to do that. Um, and it's been quite some time. Have you not met with any of the victims yet, or have you met with some of the victims? We've met with all the victims that are willing to meet with us at this point. There okay. is one remaining victim who is out of state that we are still trying to okay. connect with. How many alleged victims have you met with? We've met with Jane Doe's one, two, four, and six. To refresh your memory, Jane Doe One is the lawyer accusing Grant of raping her in 2009 and the author of that impassioned plea read in court on the pivotal day in February of last year. Jane Doe Two is the woman from Chapter Two who says she was raped by Grant and Sarissa as a team after a Sunday fun day in 2016. Jane Doe Four is the woman whose screams prompted 911 calls later that same year. Jane Doe Six, whose story you haven't heard yet, says that over Easter weekend 2017, she was visiting Newport with a UCLA classmate whose parents have a home there. She was 22 and single, and she matched with Grant on Bumble. The two made a date at the pricey sushi restaurant Nobu. Grant arrived to dinner with Sarissa, whom he explained away as a friend friend visiting unexpectedly unexpectedly from out of town. town. Riley was immediately friendly, she says, and after the group had a few cocktails at dinner, pressured her into doing a drug she said was cocaine in the bathroom of a country-themed bar. The next thing she remembers is waking up inside the beach house. She says Grant and Sarissa had sex in front of her while she cried. Then Riley, who Jane Doe 6 says, played kind of like a teacher kind of role, suggested she drink some water. Robichaux grabbed a bottle, added something to it, shook it, and handed it to her. Jane Doe 6, who was 22 at the time, says she began to feel extremely intoxicated and locked herself in another bedroom. Sarissa came back to the door and pleaded with her. He's going to get really mad. Open the door or he'll hurt us. She then overheard the couple arguing and Robichaux calling Riley a selfish bitch. Jane Doe 6 says she didn't open the door again until 6 a.m. when she snuck out of the beach house to get her Uber. She has the Uber receipt and text messages to her best friend about the incident. And before she left, she looked through their things and took pictures of Grant and Sarissa's driver's licenses. Since that night back in 2017, Jane Doe 6 relocated to Israel and joined the Israeli Defense Forces. There is a 10-hour time difference between California and Israel. That feels like a reasonably difficult Zoom to get on the calendar. Judge Bromberg seems pleased with the AG's progress. Okay. All right. All right. That's encouraging. You're making progress. All right. Um, Was that through an investigator? An investigator was present at all those meetings. Very good. All right. Okay. So it sounds like you're making progress. We are making progress, Your Honor. And as I said, our decision is imminent. Is what? Imminent. Imminent. It's the mask thing. You know, we all have to deal with this stuff. Okay. Defense is not objecting, correct? It's a yes or a no. No. Okay. I, I, I would like an earlier date. So would I. But so, not objecting to the. We'll, we'll talk about that. Okay. No objection, Mr. Barker? No objection. Yeah. And at the, the first date that she mentioned. Well, hang on, hang on. We have two other lawyers here. No objection from the Marcy's Law Attorneys. And, okay. No objection, All right. Thank you very much. Go ahead. What were you saying about a date? I was going to say the first date that was proposed by the AG was Friday, May 14th. And I believe that works for both myself and Mr. Cohen, but not with 
um, the water season trees. What's the problem on May 14th? May 14th, huh? Um, What's the problem? I'm going to be in Indonesia on May 14th. I'm sorry? I'm going to be in Indonesia on May 14th. Okay. Um, Maybe I shouldn't be surprised that Matt Murphy, a proud surfer and the lawyer for four victims in this case, will be in Indonesia on one of the most important court dates of his clients' lives. I've stopped pretending that there are male heroes in this story, and I've stopped pretending I'm not putting myself in a vulnerable position by telling it. I just never imagined I'd become an ancillary character in the proceedings. On Wednesday, April 28th, Two days after chapter six of this podcast, in which you heard an actor portray the impassioned words of Jane Doe One, I was served with a subpoena by the defense's PI, Russell Green, while buckling up my five-year-old son in his car seat to take him to preschool. It's been suggested to me that Russell, whom I certainly recognized, but only in that surreal, hey, person I saw on TV way, was personally sent by the defense as an intimidation tactic. I've heard crazier things. Back in April of last year, before the motion to dismiss was denied, I interviewed Dan Gillian, whose client Jane Doe No. 5 lodged the civil suit against Grant and Sarissa and opened a pipeline for the defense lawyers to rake third-party witnesses. She filed a lawsuit in 2018 because the statute of limitations was coming up for those civil lawsuits, and we filed it, and thereafter the uh, you know, media picked up on it. We've been um, trying to explain our position and how we interact with the criminal case ever since. In the context of the allegations of retaliation made by Jennifer Kearns, that Spitzer, quote, colluded with Grant Robichaux and Sarissa Riley's defense attorneys while engaging in a concerted political campaign to undermine the prosecution, discredit the victims, and ultimately destroy the criminal case against the couple. My conversation with Dan Gillian kind of hits different now. In the criminal case, my client is a witness, just like any other witness in any case. Um, You know, they also call her a victim. But in reality, she's just a witness like anybody else. And she has to be subpoenaed to appear at trial. And, you know, she's agreed to do that. In a civil case, she is a plaintiff. The victim is the plaintiff. And uh, she is represented by an attorney. That's me. And the purpose of the lawsuit is to obtain compensation for the damages that she suffered as a result of what Dr. Robichaud did. In the criminal case, the whole purpose in reality, even though they call themselves a Department of Corrections and a lot of people believe that, you know, it's all about uh, trying to correct some wrongdoing and maybe steer the defendant in the right direction. In reality, uh, the purpose of a criminal justice system is to punish the defendant and make society feel better about that. Um, That's just that's reality of it. It's retribution. And so that's what a prosecutor is doing. The prosecutor's goal is to represent the people of the state of California and get a conviction against Dr. Robichaud and punish Dr. Robichaud by uh, sending him to prison. That's it. The problem with that for Danielle's point of view is that she gets really nothing out of it. She thinks maybe that there's some sort of justice happening, but in reality, she gets nothing out of it more than you or I get out of it. She's just one of the people of the state of California. But it's really quite painful for her because she comes under attack by the defense attorneys, by potentially some of the jurors. But she's also left in the dark the entire time. She tries to get any information from the DA. It's very limited as to what they will provide her. 
So it's pretty miserable experience. I'm not saying that being a plaintiff in a civil case is fun. It certainly isn't, but it's a whole lot more bearable in a civil case because first of all, she's seeking compensation for what she went through. This blustering by the defense, the subpoenas, the mock outrage, the peppering, the fishing, this is all business as usual. What this is, is it's the stage where defendants' criminal cases usually stay, the stage where she's lying. And let me tell you why she's lying. She's a druggie. She was drunk. She's extorting me. You know, that's what happens, unfortunately, to victims in criminal cases and civil cases. That's what the attorneys do. It's just knee-jerk. And that's just the beginning. That's just the beginning of, of what happens. But, Gillian says, the cartoonish villainy of the exercise The fact that the gas is turned all the way up, that anyone would walk into this room and be like, yo, it stinks in here. Someone left the gas on. It straight up smells like gas in here. Can embolden a plaintiff. Because maybe it means they've got a case on their hands. It makes it almost easier for them to stay the course when the defense attorneys are taking cheap shots like that. Because, you know, ultimately it begs the question, you know, if you had some evidence that she was lying, If you had some evidence that your client didn't do this, wouldn't it make more sense to throw that out there as opposed to just attacking the character? And juries are really good at seeing through that. 99 out of 100 times, a guy is going to get away with it from the standpoint of the criminal court. And the reason is this, is that two-thirds of all sexual assaults don't get reported at all. So there's 66 guys right there that it doesn't even get reported. Of the remaining one-third, so the 33 guys out there where the the victim comes forward and reports it, only 3% of those are ever going to make their way to the criminal court system with a filing and a conviction. So just doing the math, we're talking about a tiny percentage, and it varies from state to state. But overall, in the end, it's about 1% of all cases of sexual assaults get result in a conviction. And it's just awful for a victim to go through years of that, then to be told, like it happened recently uh, by, you know, this district attorney in Danielle's case, you know, my client learned from the media that he had decided to drop all the charges using that same reason. Oh, we don't think that we could meet our burden of proof. It's just a really, really tough situation. I think that could change if we would just change how we get uh, district attorneys in there and get trial attorneys in there that you know, aren't scared to lose a case as opposed to politicians. I think that would change a lot of things. I had to know, GHB, is that something you've ever seen fall under the casual party drug category? Not as a party drug, no. And especially for women, not for women. Maybe if you're a really cheap guy that weighs about 400 pounds, I mean, because no, it's 10 to one. Doing one shot is like doing 10 shots. What person in their right mind is going? To, are they going to use that because of calories? No. I've come across it all the time. It's always a date rape drug. Always. This is just those, what we call them, Hail Marys, you know, <laughs> where they're going for anything they can. You know, yeah, they were party girls and she was partying on, uh, you know, GHB. This is a unique criminal defense and they're very, very aggressive. They are, it's like a, you know, a Ruthian pointing to the fence. I mean, they stand to lose everything, and they're sitting there right now calling a home run over the center field fence, and that's the way they've been conducting themselves. There's a a lot of money being spent, and I don't know where Dr. Riley got it from, but a lot of money being spent, and right now they're really positioning this to be 
you know, all out war. And, you know, I get, I think it makes sense if you have a DA like uh, Spitzer who's willing to roll over and say, no, I quit after having these women devoted and dedicated to this criminal process for years. You know, Spitzer from using this as a political tool even before he was elected, you know, he gets up there and on the one side of the mouth, he's saying, elect me, I'm a champion of all, you know, sexual assault victims. I was part of the Marcy's Law, blah, 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 blah. And then on the other hand, he's handing out private information about the victims to the media and trying to use it to get elected. Then he comes on and the defense attorneys take a deposition and they get the former DA to say, and just be honest, yes, he did see some political benefit in filing this case. Well, guess what? That's what all DAs do. All DAs look at cases they file that are high profile as to the effect on their politics. Every one of them does, and that's what the problem is. But then this DA, who himself played the dirtiest of all politics just to get elected, then comes out and throws you know, his predecessor under the bus as a reason for why he's dismissing the charges. None of the evidence was admissible. It wasn't. It was never going to come into trial, but he he cites it anyway. So there's some stuff that it, it just doesn't add up. You know, I had conversations with uh, Spitzer before he was even elected. I was not impressed. Didn't like his attitude. Didn't like the phoniness. Didn't like the transparent politics that he was playing. And I, I just knew that coming in that something was going to happen. Okay, I said. Isn't the swingers argument a really flimsy defense? Doesn't it basically put the defendant's hands on the gun without quite pulling the trigger? Yeah, you know, it's not a good one. I don't like it, but they're trying. I mean, maybe in Orange County. I don't know. I mean, I I really don't. But I can tell you this. I cannot remember one time ever thinking that I had a quote-unquote swinger as a juror on my on, on any panel I've been in, in front of. I don't know if that's going to work at trial. It's not the best defense. In fact, it's an awful defense is to start saying that that's what they were into because everyone knows that the human nature is always to kind of, well, oftentimes, especially with drugs, is to push the envelope. So if you're a swinger and you're engaging in sexual activities that most people don't do, then isn't it foreseeable that you're going to encounter a woman that doesn't want to do it either? It's very possible that They just did this so much, and every once in a while, he went too far. That's the way a lot of crimes are committed, by the way, is that guys, you know, they ride the fence. They go almost all the way up to the point of uh, committing a crime, and then they stop. And if they do it a lot and they get cocky, then invariably it's going to happen that they um, go too far. And But that's a crime. You know, that's a a felony. And... um, so I don't know if that's a very good defense at all. But then again, if you have nothing else, then that's what you got to go with. Don't lose sight of the fact that there are several victims, none of whom stand to benefit from any of this, that said the same thing. That alone is damning. There is no reason for a woman to ever make something like this up. There's just no upside to a woman for doing that. Yeah, there are those rare cases that we hear about where they do make something up. But those cases, even though they're rare, they always get weeded out during the investigation stage. They never make it all the way to a a criminal court. And that's just with one victim, just one victim. What's the odds that five victims who are willing to come forward 
And one of them is a defense attorney, a civil defense attorney. There is zero reason for them to make something like this up. One of the very first people I talked to when I started working on this podcast is a civil litigator in Orange County named Sarah Nahidi. I originally contacted her after reading a blog post she had written in 2018 titled Corruption in the Orange County District Attorney's Office. Back in March 2020, I asked Sarah to pinpoint the most astounding part of the case against Grant Robichaux and Sarissa Riley. Reading that case was just mind-boggling to me because this doctor who was charged with these crimes and his girlfriend, it wasn't just one victim or one person who came forward. There were multiple people who came forward. And this doctor was charged. And then once a new DA came in, Todd Spitzer, all of a sudden this case got, you know, a whole new vantage point where the new DA said, hey, you know, there's not enough evidence here. We can drop the case. I mean, what stands out most to me is that how could this case just simply go away? Something is amiss here. There's something that the public doesn't know. Nearly an entire year later, and five days before we launched this podcast, I called Sarah again. She remained convinced that Todd Spitzer and the defendants are connected in a political or financial alliance. It didn't surprise her one bit that considering the case's checkered past, the AG's office had been unable to reach three of the seven victims. When you were talking about the victims not showing up or cooperating with the attorneys who are prosecuting the case, I wonder, you know, are they being silenced? Is somebody paying them to go away and not pursue it? Or is it more from a place of, I have so much more to lose by pursuing this and having all of the details of my personal and private light out in the public because I that victims often don't come forward because you have so much to lose by telling your story and the sense of being discredited, undermined, slut-shamed, negative repercussions for your career, for your personal life, your family life. It creates a lot of anxiety for the victims and a lot of unknown and a lot more pressure to have it build up like this. And I'm sure a lot of these victims want to move forward with their life, you know, get married, start a family, whatever it is, pursue a career, and to have this be hanging over their heads. It's not something I would wish for anybody. So again, the delay, the constant delay has been detrimental psychologically to the victims and probably their willingness to want to continue and move forward and tell their story. On May 14th, 2021, all sides reassembled in court for what the attorney general's office had promised would be the very last pre-trial hearing. Uh, you're on the record, people versus Robichaud and Riley. Just three days prior, the AG's office filed a motion to amend the complaint against Grant and Sarissa. You are asking the court to dismiss all of the sex charges, including rape and oral copulation by anesthesia, correct? No, Your Honor, we are just being charged as to Jane Doe. Are you seeking to dismiss the rape charges? As to the other victims, yes. Of all of the allegations made against Grant and Sarissa, Yvette Martinez says, the only sex crime they think they can prove is that Grant and Sarissa drugged Jane Doe 6 with an intent to rape her. 
This is the woman who says she met Grant on a dating app over Easter weekend in 2017 and then locked herself in a bedroom after she was drugged. A team of four from the AG's office met with all of the victims who would cooperate, and they were unanimous in their findings. Though no one ever actually breaks the fourth wall and addresses the attending press, you can tell that everyone in court is carefully weighing their words. Everything is coded. Everything is loaded. Which of the alleged victims refused to speak with you? Jordan, I'm very hesitant to name... You don't know, we're just giving Jane Doe's. We're not using names. Right. Even with the Jane Doe's, I'm hesitant to state that in open court. I'm happy to have those conversations in chambers. Why are you hesitant? Because I don't want it, I don't want it to seem vic- as victim blaming. Well, you did put it in your motion, didn't you? That some victims... We did, however, we did not name them. But like I said, I'm happy to have this conversation. How many How many are there that did not talk to you? There are two. Was that because of unavailability, or they chose not to talk to you, or you don't know? They chose not to speak to us. Judge Bromberg asks for clarification. After speaking with five of the seven alleged victims, did the attorney general's office believe that any of the women were lying about what they say happened to them? In interviewing the uh, alleged victims in this case, and then uh, reviewing the statements for those that would not speak with you, and I'm sure you did that, did you and your team make an issue, make a determination as to the issue of credibility as to the alleged victims? We made a determination as to provability of counts. Okay, I, I, I respect that. So in determining the issue of provability, whether or not you can prove your case, would you agree credibility is a major factor? Or may, credibility of witnesses can be a major factor? Yes. So, did you and your team make a determination of credibility as to one or more of the alleged victims as such relates to the provability of the case? No. No. Okay, so you believed... You did not you did not believe the alleged victims were being untruthful. We have no reason to believe that any of these victims are being untruthful. In general, that doesn't necessarily mean that that is a provable case. So, when you said you have no reason to believe any are you referring to any of the victims, there's not one alleged victim that you believe was being untruthful. Is that correct? That's I just need correct. to. Okay. All right. But by the statements that they've given, you're of the mind that you cannot prove this to a jury. Yes. Okay. All right. Okay. Good. All right. Judge Bromberg takes it all in before making his decision. He's not granting the amendment. Not just yet, anyway. He wants more information, count by count, as to why the allegations made by five credible women wouldn't stand up in court. I'm not looking for a 250-page brief. Um, Hopefully, you will be very direct. 
and incredibly specific as to why you cannot believe you cannot prove your case. Um, with that, you may be giving the store away to a certain extent. But I don't know how I can even think or consider granting your motion if you don't give me the information or the tools that I need to consider your concerns. Because you think about it, you are, well, you have thought about it, obviously. You are looking to dismiss every single allegation of a sexual nature that resulted in a charge in the violation of California Penal Code, with the exception of the one that's in there now and how you want to modify that as to alleged victim number six. Okay. So that's why I need to know. And, and if you don't give me the information I need, and you're going to give it to me verbally in court. I'm not suggesting you wouldn't, but if you're looking to be cautious, throw caution out the window. I need to see what you're talking about. There's a lot at stake for the defendants, for the alleged victims, and for the people. There's a lot at stake. And everyone's going to be transparent about this. Um, and that's the only way I can do my job and make a determination. I can't do it any other way. I watched the May 14th proceedings live with a sense of abject horror. And then I thought of Jane Doe 4 the woman whose screams prompted neighbors to call 911 more than four years ago, trying to make sense of what we'd just heard. I texted her lawyer, Mike Fell. Wait, for real? One charge? After all that? He called me on his way home from court. So another crazy, eventful, head-scratching day in court for us civilians. But my sense and what the judge is saying basically is that of the sex charges, the only one that they're advocating to go to trial is the one against Jane Doe 6. Is that accurate? Yeah, that is accurate. That's the attorney general's position right now. But we're, we're very much in a position that we were, you know, pre-June 5th. So as Yogi Berra says, it's almost like deja vu all over again, right? Right. Because the judge is asking for briefs as to whether or not he should allow the attorney general's office to amend the complaint. And if he allows the attorney general to amend the complaint, then you're right, Justine, six out of the seven victims will be dismissed. And your victim is aware, I guess the AG called you or her this week and told her of the position they were in? Yes, yes. We actually had a meeting with uh, the attorney general last night and um, with my client, Um, and her supervisor and her investigator. So yeah, I will tell you this, the attorney general has really been wonderful about keeping us in the loop as to what's been going on. Not that we agree with her position, but she really has been wonderful about letting my client know what's going on and just making sure that my client is aware of what's occurring in the proceedings. But it's like the whole court knows, it felt like a knowing, like, We know that all of this looks really bad. We know that none of these women are purposefully misleading anyone, and yet we can't prove it. It's just a hard thing to kind of sift through your brain as a person who's been paying attention to this and watching it. It's sort of like everyone's like, no, no, you're not lying. We're not saying that nothing bad happened to you. We we just can't prove it. And it's a hard fact of how we judge these events and how we it's just it's hard to process. Well, and that's why it's a head scratcher. And the disadvantage that I am in 
as a Marcy's Law attorney representing a victim in the case is that I am not privy to the same evidence that the prosecutor has and the same evidence that the defense attorney has. And that's why I said to the judge exactly that. I'm at a disadvantage. I don't know what type of impeachment evidence the defense is talking about. I don't know if there's evidence that the prosecutor is relying upon to be able to make a determination that they can't prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. But my position is then ask my client, then put her on the stand and try to impeach her and let's hear what she has to say. So if their impeachment evidence is, well, you said the sky was black that day and the sky was blue, let her explain why she believed the sky was black and whether or not that's an issue that goes against the fact that she was sexually assaulted or not. Obviously, we were anticipating something a little different, or at least I was last week. What would you call this moment in the timeline of the case? Great question. Put it this way, I'm very pleased. I'm pleased that the judge has taken this under submission in the fact that he wants everybody to be able to state what their position is as to whether or not they should be forced to go forward. As you heard, the judge also talked a little bit about whether or not there's a special prosecutor, right. which potentially could be appointed. So again, there's more twists and turns. Yeah. If I were to have to, uh, I think the word that you said is, what do you call today? I would call today more of the roller coaster ride. It hadn't once occurred to me that what I just watched, this new loop-de-loop on the never-ending coaster ride, could be interpreted as a positive thing. But then I remembered all of the tiny victories it took to get here. And I just said, somebody's yelling help. It sounds frantic. And I've never heard anybody sound like that. And please hurry. We believe the defendants use their good looks and charm to lower the inhibitions of their potential prey. New trouble for that reality show doctor and his girlfriend charged with drugging and sexually assaulting multiple women. There's a deep, I would say beyond grudge, I think there's a hatred between those two men. And it wasn't enough to beat Tony. I think Todd wanted to bury him. Insufficient evidence. That's the word from the new district attorney and dropping charges against a doctor and his girlfriend. Your Honor, today I not only wanted to detail what has happened to me since reporting this crime, but I also wanted the opportunity to respectfully request that the court take some time and consider not dismissing this case. The long and the short of it is that I have serious questions about the district attorney's ability to prosecute this case at this point. I think that they are hopelessly conflicted. I am going to order that the case be referred to the attorney general's office for prosecution. Do you think with obviously kind of the larger Me Too movement, and maybe it's a sad testament to the fact that, you know, the victims have kind of, I mean, to some extent, they have not been the focus at all of this recently. Our goal is to be able to have our clients take the stand and tell a jury what Mr. Robichaud and Ms. Riley did to them and to let that jury figure out what justice is. Sex crimes cases are not won by a landslide. They are won and lost by hanging chads. Here's what I know. In the upcoming weeks, the defense will argue that the court doesn't have the power to deny the amended complaint. That a motion like that can only be denied when there is proof of some sort of ulterior motive or political conflict. They'll fight to move ahead on a sex charge that could corner their clients a 10-year prison sentence. 
because it means leaving the allegations of six others in the rear view. They'll revise their position as many times as necessary, like a video game whose universe reimagines itself, or a virus that learns. They'll light money on fire to do it. They'll huff and puff. They'll try to blow this goddamn house right down. But one thing they can't deny is that a year ago, Judge Jones changed the course of this case forever by refusing to dismiss the case against Grant Robichaux and Sarissa Riley. And now it is one step closer to trial, one step closer to conviction. It has been wrested from Todd Spitzer's hands. It has been battered, but not broken. This case isn't just about seven women who say they were drugged and assaulted by a handsome couple in Newport Beach. It's another step forward in our collective deprogramming and a mighty blow to the powerful myths we're all taught. That women lie about this. That women cry rape to get back at men who rejected them. That women don't prey on other women. That any occasion where a man didn't assault a woman or properly understood the notion of consent proves that a man is not capable of this behavior. We don't think that way about any other criminal activity. But when it comes to sexual assault, the inconsistency is just too upsetting to bear. A rapist, we tell ourselves, cannot hide who he is. What we don't say is that he really doesn't have to. The next court date in the People vs. Robichaux and Riley is on the calendar for June 11, 2021. At that time, all sides will discuss the briefs they've prepared. And then there will be a hearing after that, and likely another after that. The victims may eventually take the stand. And when they do, they will be asked to recall what happened to them as best they can through the fog of time and trauma and disbelief. In my head, Jennifer Kearns, a veteran investigator who spent 14 years advocating for sex crimes victims and has been effectively gagged by the sitting district attorney of Orange County, is rooting for them to keep pushing the boulder uphill. Go. 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 It has been over 10 years since Jane Doe 1 says she was raped by Grant Robichaux. 10 years since she says a cocky medical resident looked a law student in the eye after forcing himself inside her and said, we're having sex now, so there's no point in saying no anymore. Right before I filed this episode, I called Jane Doe 1, who was expecting her first child at the end of this month. I asked once more whether she might like to speak with me on the record about her experiences. And she said maybe one day, but not just yet. She knows if the AG's motion to amend is approved, she will no longer be involved with the case. She's good with that. She did what she came here to do two and a half years ago when she heard on the news that her rapist might finally be punished for what he did. May 14th, 2021, she told me, was a good day. Bottom line, she said, they want to move forward with at least one victim. That's a win. And we just need one to get a win. OC Swingers is an Audio Chuck original, executive produced by Ashley Flowers, and created, written, and reported by me, Justine Harmon. It was produced by Josh McLaughlin, editing and sound designed by David Flowers, with additional research and fact-checking by Barbara Keene. Special thanks to Michael Carey, Anne Dibel, and Anna Hendrick of Quest Investigates, and Oren Rosenbaum at UTA. So Chuck, do you approve? <laughs>